Hey, hey, yo, what's up everybody? Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Friday afternoon, the 23rd, Christmas is almost here, or I guess Kwanzaa or Hanukkah's already passed, so mainly Christmas is almost here. And what, we had the shortest day of the year, I think, on the 21st, so if you want to look glass half full, I guess we're getting closer to summer now, right? Every day is going to be getting a little bit longer, so can't complain about that. Though it means that today is pretty much going to be just just as short as two days ago. Maybe a little bit better, but let's not, let's not get too excited yet. I also, before we get in, I want to talk about a lot of things today. Last episode, probably before Christmas, I want to talk about Stanford going way too woke and just redefining terms. Apparently, you can't say blind study anymore. Apparently, you can't say, hey, you guys. You can't say, hey, you ladies. You have to say folks. But anyways, we'll get into that in a little bit. I also want to talk about fears of a new variant that could be coming out of China. I want to talk about Trump's taxes and why I think it shows the IRS is a failure. And I want to talk about the wrap-up of the January 6th committee and the pros and cons of it and what's next. But first, our buddy George Santos, remember the Republican who won in a swing district, turned it from blue to red. He was working for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and gay and Jewish and a Brazilian immigrant. Well, about every day, it turns out more of his resume is a lie. First off, we knew that he lied about where he went to college. We found out that he lied about working for Goldman Sachs. We found out he lied about going to Citigroup. Then we found out it looks like he's not Jewish, (laughs) which is always interesting. It's really, it's kind of shameful after all the pain and trauma that the Jewish community has gone through to lie about that. But I don't have enough time to get into that, so we'll keep moving. And it looks like, I think it was yesterday now. Apparently he's not gay, or if he is, he's been really closeted about it. I don't actually know. It's hard to pick into his mind, but it came out that he was married to a woman and divorced and has claimed that never happened. So who knows? I mean, I can't get inside this guy's head. Maybe he's just been closeted or bi, but whatever. Pretty much everything in his resume has been a lie. And (laughs) it's a shame because... I guess in a democracy, people vote, and there's really no way to say this guy shouldn't be an elected official now because he's lying, but then you also have to say, well, if these people voted for him because they thought he was all these things, and now he's not those things, is he really a viable person anymore? And I saw next week he's apparently going to address all of these issues. I am actually very curious. I'll probably watch it just to see what the hell he's talking about, but for now... There's a lot of silence. His lawyers are trying to double down. His family won't say anything. And next week, we're going to find out the truth, or at least his version of the truth. But this has been a very fascinating saga. This is a very different type of grift. And I can't imagine that it looks good for the Glenn Greenwalds or the grifter Glenn Greenwalds, Glenn the Grift Greenwald out there who was like, oh, this is a Brazilian immigrant and gay, great Republican. You know, I think a lot of people are wishing maybe they weren't so vocally in support of him now that things have come out. So we're just going to have to keep watching. Anyways, I talked about that storm yesterday. Looks like it might be the icing on the cake for already rising energy costs and rising living costs across the United States. There's an article from CNN that notes in quotes here, the once-in-a-generation winter storm sweeping across the nation will force Americans to crank up the heat at a time when it's become increasingly expensive to do so. 
The article also discusses how a report from the National Energy Assistance Directors Association, man, that's a tongue full, says that in quotes here, the cost to heat homes is expected to be 35.7% higher this winter than the 2020-2021 winter. And obviously this is a problem because more than 100 million people across the U.S. are under some form of winter weather and wind chill alerts. We have that weather cyclone coming that's just going to bring cold air. And a lot of these places, especially New England, use a lot of natural gas, which has gone up close to 25% already this winter. And a lot of other places also do use heating oils still. And some numbers I've seen say that these could go up as high as 45%. And I I said this yesterday, and I'll say it again, is I I think this is really a learning moment for how countries, ourselves included, need to start dealing with these extreme weather conditions, because I don't see this getting better. Obviously, this is an extreme one, but we are seeing more and more extreme weather. And as we see economic issues and people struggling, this is just going to make matters so much worse. And as a wealthy giant country, we need to be better. Now, the first First thing I want to do is talk about an issue happening in China. I've covered extensively the zero COVID policy. Xi Jinping thought it would be able to control the virus, keep people locked in. They were welding people into their buildings so they didn't get COVID. The Chinese government saw these draconian measures as a way to save face, I think. And then I covered the protests. Well, the Chinese government, as I'm sure you all are aware, has eventually kind of backtracked on the zero COVID policies. And I guess you could say now it seems like the cat is out of the bag. Like China, like COVID is running rampant in China. I guess that's the best way to put it. And it's a problem because they don't have the same immunity that a lot of the United States, for example, has or Europe because people have not been exposed to it. They've been locked in their houses. Also, you have the vaccine not working and you have older populations not being vaccinated. So It's pretty much like the perfect combination for a hellish scenario would be the best way I would put it. And it looks like that scenario is starting to unfold. The Economist in, I think it was in an article actually out today, basically tried to model what is going to happen with this new wave of the pandemic in China. And it discusses that while this can be difficult in China because of unreliable data and the state covering up everything, The Economist does create a model that takes into account variables that include vaccination rates, which are low, the effectiveness of Chinese jabs, which are low, (laughs) the lethality of COVID for different age groups, and the number of intensive care beds. And The Economist writes here in quotes, in the worst case, if COVID spreads freely and many people cannot get care, we estimate that in the coming months, 1.5 million Chinese people will die from the virus. That's right, 1.5 million Chinese people. That's more than over two years in the United States of COVID. And I guess it makes sense when you've had just such flawed policies and flawed response to the pandemic, generally speaking. And I guess this is, well, it's tragic, right? And it probably could have been avoided. Also, I don't have the, not like any like data in front of me to back this up, but it does seem like Chinese nationalism kind of comes into play a little bit when you think about There was an effective AstraZeneca, there was an effective Pfizer, there was an effective Moderna vaccine, Novavax is coming up, and I think the Chinese were not really willing to accept it, and they wanted to use their Sinovax because they wanted to say the Chinese can do it. And the problem is they were giving this vaccine to other parts of the world, and now we're knowing that's kind of an issue. So that's my first concern here is that I think China could have prevented this, but it's also terrifying 
because it seems almost inevitable that this many cases bouncing around in China are going to lead to some form of a new variant. And of course, so far, we've seen variants like Omicron, Delta. Delta was very transmissible and quite, quite painful to get, from my understanding. And then we see Omicron come along, which is less deadly but more transmissible. And I think all of us would hope, and based on trends, expect that a new variant would be less deadly but more transmissible. But of course, we don't know. We're playing with fire here, right? And so I think there's fears that what if this next variant is more deadly or it totally evades vaccines, for example. And I guess when you have a country as big as China, and I mean, God, if I mean, the economist model says worst case scenario, 1.5 million Chinese people die. How many cases do you think that is? I mean, if COVID has, you know, what, less than a 1% death rate, it's kind of terrifying to think of how many cases there are. And, and with that many cases, you know there has to be some sort of situation where the virus mutates and a new variant comes out or a subvariant, And that's troubling. And it seems like there are warning signals, at least at this point, because CNN Globe, so kind of their foreign policy side of the CNN stuff, which I actually think is more reliable than CNN domestic. But anyways, they have an interesting article that says India's health minister has advised the public to take precautions against COVID-19, including getting vaccinated and wearing masks. This is because the country remains on alert, on alert sorry, for potential new variants that could emerge from the wave of infections sweeping neighboring China. And this could be big if there was a new variant that evaded our current responses or was worse in some way or more transmissible because India is a nightmare scenario for another variant and it's right next to China. And, you know, I'm just looking, I'm just scanning the internet right now. Times of India, India prepared than, sorry, it says India is better prepared than China for a new COVID wave and a new variant. And then another one says, is India heading towards fourth wave? India on lookout for new variant. You have another one here. Here's how Indian government prepares to track virus variants amid China's new COVID horror scenario. Another one from Reuters. India on lookout for new COVID variants as horror scenario continues in China. And I think horror scenario in China is probably the best way to describe what's happening right now. But it just seems like it's been over a year since we had our last variant. Obviously, we've had sub-variants. And it's, it's troubling because I think we're all letting our guards down, myself included. I'm definitely guilty of that. And, ah, God, it must have been on the old podcast. I, I remember saying something to the effect of, we will never totally get over COVID until everyone has immunity or everyone in the world gets it. And unfortunately, China's going to be kind of the Achilles heel right now. And so we're going to have to watch and see. But I think we're going to see a lot of tragedy and chaos right now in China because they're two years behind all of us in this scenario. And to catch up, they're going to have to go through a lot of the pain that they avoided. And I think this is also just not really, I don't want to totally say I told you so, but you saw governments like Spain and Italy kind of follow China's lockdown method at first. Luckily, they broke away and did their own thing. But it does kind of make you wonder that, like, why did so many governments want to do these like strict lockdowns when it just didn't seem inevitable, especially now that we have a vaccine. At first, it's totally understandable, but now it's just kind of crazy. And now China's going to play catch up, and I hope other countries don't have to suffer because of that. Now, I'm going to move on here to 
Something I usually don't talk about on the podcast. I usually try not to delve too far into culture war stuff or the policing of language or woke politics, identity politics, all that stuff. And I was, however, listening to The Fifth Column, which is a libertarian podcast that I quite like. I think it was yesterday. And they made me aware of Stanford University doing something that is cringy, insane, pathetic, and way overboard, and just stupid, in my opinion. And it's called the Harmful Language Initiative and the Elimination of the Harmful Language Initiative from the IT community. And it goes way too far. It goes way too far. Like, like way too far. Like, you can't even see in the distance how far it's gone. And I decided I wanted to dip, I wanted to dip my toes into this topic for a moment and talk about it because... I just feel like these universities want to shoot themselves in the foot at this point. I just have an issue with this one, especially because Stanford is one of the top universities in the United States. It's supposed to be an open place. It's supposed to be open to different ideas, open to dialogue, open to ideas, topics. And now it's worried about the specific words you're using. I hate to break it to you, but whatever words you use, people usually understand what you're trying to say. So changing a word without changing the intent behind the word is not going to change anything. And I've talked about this before, I believe, back in the summer, but probably one of the most important pieces of literature from the 20th century was Politics and the English Language by our friend George Orwell. And basically he criticizes the written English of his time, examines the connection between political orthodoxies, and links it to the debasement of language. And I guess you could say he argues that language can be used by politicians or opportunists to mean whatever you want it to. He discusses how if thought can corrupt language, language can also corrupt thought. And I I do think when we try to control what words are said and what people think and say, it can really, I guess it can take people away from the actual issues and make them focus on these perceptions of issues and perceptions of what meaning is. And it it is kind of Orwellian. And now maybe, you know, I I have seen that Stanford has kind of now stepped back a little on this after, after all the backlash they've got. But I do think it's just an important thing to show how these universities are more focused on these mundane issues rather than actually understanding education and creating better conversations that maybe then make people not so criticized and so controversial and dangerous. And so I just wanted to go through some of these because while, of course, there's some words that should go away, like I'm fine if you get rid of terms like ghetto or thug or words like master, which is clearly like master bed, which is clearly like, or master bedroom, which are clearly like associated with slavery and institutional racism. There's definitely words that can be completely thrown out. But a lot of these are just like an overreach. So let's get into this for a moment. Just to give some background, this report, of course, starts with a warning, and I have the report pulled up next to me here, so I'm going to be going off of it. But the report has a warning at the beginning that reads, in quotes, this website contains language that is offensive or harmful. Please engage with this website at your own pace. Man, I I mean, trigger warning, right? I, I hope you guys make it through this because it is so dangerous. And anyways, we're going to just keep moving through this. Then basically this document, it's a, I had pulled the PDF up. It goes into several categories, including ableist, ageism, colonialism, 
culturally appropriative, gender-based, imprecise language, institutionalized racism, person-first, violent, and additional considerations. All of these words have been overinflated or definitions have been changed over the years. Anyways, let's start with ableist, the first category. I'm just going to name a few from each one just to give you some context and kind of my reactions to it. So ableist has to do with kind of, I guess, language involving people that have disabilities or specific issues that make them struggle in society. And so one word that Stanford's initiative says you cannot use, and this one's pretty great, is lame. Lame is not allowed now. And they say, instead of using lame, use the term boring or uncool. Now, the weird thing is, is that uncool is also kind of a, it has the same context to me. Like, if you call someone lame or uncool, I think they're, they're going to feel bad no matter what you say. Another one, blind study. Instead of using blind study, say masked study. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was in college and we read about different blind studies that were being done, I don't know if a lot of us ever went, oh, this is offensive. Like, I don't know if everyone's mind goes to that right away. But anyways, masked study is the pr- proper word that should be used according to Stanford. Also, crazy. Instead of using crazy, you should use surprising or wild. To be honest, like, I don't know if crazy, surprising, and wild are all synonymous with each other. I hate to break that to you, but I don't. Also, another word in the ableist category is addict. Addict, sorry. You should not use addict. And instead, you should say person with substance use disorder. To me, it sounds like you're talking down to people. Like, if I call someone an addict or I call someone a person with a substance abuse disorder, it's, we, all, we, all, we all know what's being said, right? I don't know. I just feel like there's bigger fish to fry. Let's move on to colonialism. I actually think in the colonialism category, there were some that I agreed with, just to be fair, because I don't want to just come off this like everything should be used. Like powwow. Powwow is a word that I'd probably agree shouldn't be used. Calling someone chief. Okay, just call someone their name or boss or something. Okay. Like, I think this was the category I most agreed with just because it does make sense based on our history of colonialism in the United States, right? I think that one can kind of, kind of make sense to me. Anyways, um, in this category, a few that I thought were crazy is they said not to call someone Geronimo or talk about Geronimo. I'm like, the only time I've ever used Geronimo is when discussing the actual person. And that's what they said is you can only call someone Geronimo when you're talking about Geronimo himself. And I'm like, what type of people do you think all of us are here? Also, you can't use the term guru, which, and they said, instead of saying guru, call someone a subject matter expert. Give me a break. Also, going into a different category, we have ageism. <laughs> In, <laughs> this one, I don't even... Oh God. Apparently, you can't say graybeard, which I've never actually even used that word or heard anyone use that. But apparently, you can't use graybeard. You could, you could consider just calling them by their name. And the context, apparently, is that it calls out an older and presumably more experienced person by referencing to their age instead of their name. (sighs) Senile, they also say not to use. Okay, maybe some people are offended by that, whatever. Going on to what's our next category here? Colonialism, we talked about that, and culturally appropriative. 
you know, I like I said, calling someone Pocahontas, not good. Um, spirit animal, I could understand why people would have issues with that. That's the one category I get. Now, going on to gender-based pronouns, all that stuff. Apparently, you should not call someone he anymore. So if I'm talking about my buddy, I can't say I think he's coming over. They say you should instead say your buddy's name. And look, sometimes if I'm talking about someone, or they, I guess you can also say they, but it's like you can't just say the person's he or she. They also say you can't say she is coming over. You should say their name. Also, freshmen, you you either call them a freshman or a first year. Man-made, oh boy, don't say that one. It needs to be made by hand. Also, congressman, congresswoman, you just need to call a legislator. What else do we have? Oh, I can't say, hey, you guys, or hey, ladies, we need to do this. It always needs to be folks, which that's fine. I do use folks a lot of the time, but I guess if I'm talking to a group of guys or I, I, I don't know, whatever, folks is fine. I'll, I'll go along with that one. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? Eh. You guys also, yeah, you should use folks, people, or everyone. So it's always fun. Apparently, going into imprecise language, which is the next one, you should never use the term abort. You should instead say cancel or end. I mean, all right. Also, American should never be used. It should be United States citizen. User should never be a thing. It should instead be client. Immigrant should never be used. It should be a non-citizen. That one's just a little insane to me. Also, abusive relationship should never be used. It should be relationship with an abusive person. So it just gets kind of tiring here because like all of these words, no matter how you say them to me, have the same meaning. But the one I did highlight, I actually literally, if you're looking at my screen here, which you're not, but I actually like highlighted this one because I just really wanted to say is you cannot say Hispanic, Spanish-speaking, or Latino. It has to be Latinx or Latinx, whatever you want to say. And Latinx is the stupidest one on this list because Latinx is a word that the New York Times uses, that the Washington Post uses, the Huffington Post uses. It's a term that Latinos don't use. In Spanish, which I speak, it would be very hard to use that because Spanish is a gendered language and there is really no way to just replace the O or A with an X in the language. And it's one of the ones where you've seen the culture war hijacked by elitists. And Latinx, Latinx, whatever you want to use it, is one of the most insane things ever that is really not used by the actual community unless they're really young, angry, woke ones. It's mainly used by college liberals and white elites. And it's very fitting for Stanford, of course, to recommend using that. Now, again, there's a few on here like Oriental that I understand that should not be used. It's a, per, it's a pejorative, racializes people. Um, but other ones like stupid. Apparently stupid should be uncool or boring, not even the same meaning. So I don't know, like maybe I'll get some pushback from this, that's okay. But most of these are insane to me. And I'll just reiterate that I don't think changing a word actually changes the meaning or, t or context of what a person is actually thinking about or trying to say. It just doesn't. Like, that's just not how the world works. And these institutions that used to be about sharing thought and debate and sometimes being uncomfortable have just completely pushed that out the door for being sensitive. And 
I think there's just, at the end of the day, something kind of condescending about all of this, to be honest. So anyways, we'll move on. This isn't really a culture war podcast, so I spent already probably too much time on this. So yeah. So let's move on to some other topics more related to the usual conversations I have on here. So we are basically moving like a wrecking ball towards 2023, and the January 6th committee is finally wrapping up its efforts. Before the, before the Republicans take over Congress and likely work to protect Donald Trump at all costs. Because, again, let's remember, protecting him is really just protecting themselves because they enabled him from the beginning. And there are so many different individuals impacted by the lies that Trump and his enablers have done. I just want to say that off the bat. There are the kind of first effect people, like the ones who actually died at January 6th or the families of those officers that died on January 6th. Then you have the second second layer of people that were affected by it, such as the random guy from Ohio who drives there because he was convinced by his lawmakers that the election was stolen and he's mad. Now his life is ruined because he's in prison. Then you have his family who are maybe trying to pay to see him or trying to pay for some of his legal bills. Now they're impacted. Or what about then you have another effect of the people who are paying into Trump's super pact using their welfare checks or their social security to do so. There's all these people impacted by it, and it's just a shame, right? And anyways, the January 6th committee, I think, brought all this into the light, just the grift and the lies that almost tried to bring down something that is very sacred in this world, and that is elections, liberty, freedom, and the supposed patriotism that a lot of these grifters and MAGA people think. And... I talk to so many people who are like, it's time to move on from Trump. I'm like, they're like, he can't win. I love the guy, but it's, but it's time to move on. Like I was talking to someone recently who's like, I can look past all of his bad stuff because I think he was the best president ever. And I won't use the person's name, but that really kind of pissed me off. Because to me, I could never move past the coup attempt or the cruelty at the border or the cheating on your wife while wanting to get rid of abortions, or just the hateful language. I could never get past that. And anyone who can, it does trouble me. But okay, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a diatribe here. But the January 6th committee put out its final report. And it's a lot of damning information, especially if we were all living in a normal world, or a normal place, or a normal time, or a normal society. But instead, people like me care. And Republicans will just say it's more of the same old and they won't care and they'll say it's an unselect committee or a witch hunt and it's just too bad. And The Economist reports here, in quotes, the committee investigating the assault on America's Capitol released its final report blaming the attack on one man, Donald Trump. The former president is accused of carrying out a multi-part plan to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And... You know, the the report's release is the culmination of an 18-month-long investigation. Comes days after the committee recommended that Mr. Trump be charged with federal crimes, and here we are. End quotes. <laughs> of course, we must remember that the committee can only recommend charges, which is something that is kind of unfortunate, but that's just how things work. <laughs> and so they can recommend charges, but they can't do really more than that. So this is the point where they are just screaming into the void at Merrick Garland to do something to prosecute Trump. And I still think in this case it's probably unlikely because breaking from precedent is just something that I don't think anyone wants to do. 
even Merrick Garland. But I do think we are more likely to see charges coming from maybe what we find in Trump's taxes, the Georgia election chaos, the Southern District of New York, all that stuff. But anyways, sticking on the J6 committee for a second, I always thought it was interesting that their goal was just to say Trump should never allowed to be president again, right? And it makes sense because remember that time when we thought we could have nice things where after January 6th, they impeached Trump and then tried to convict him in the Senate and he got away? Part of me wonders if some Republicans just wish that they had have convicted him in the Senate so he could never run again. It would have made things probably easier, right? I, I just wonder if they ever think back on that and go, damn, we really should have just done it. Now, I don't want to stay forever on this topic, but I do think it's remarkable that the committee ended up releasing both a 154-page summary on Monday and then an 845-page final report released yesterday, which was Thursday, if my dates are correct, which I think they are. And the committee just did a great job of acting like prosecutors, trying to focus on Trump's actions leading up to the day as well as after. And, you know, a lot of people said, oh, no one cares. This committee is just doing a witch hunt like January 6th was bad, but we should move on. And look, the American people tuned in as these committees looked at even people in Trump's orbit who thought he was deranged and dangerous. And a lot of now election data and polling does show that voters were troubled by by these actions by Trump. And this may have actually impacted his influence in the midterms. Maybe that's why Mastriano didn't even do well at all. And I think the committee did a really good job at finding a visual and creative way to relay information to the American people. They were historic also in the fact that most of the American people supported at least some form of accountability for Trump and his allies, even Republicans. And I think for this reason, the the committee was effective in ruining Trump. They were. I, I truly do believe that. The hearings tried to do what the impeachment conviction in the Senate failed to do. I truly believe that as well. And that's important stuff. But I think you know there's a but coming. And here comes the but. They were good. But my issue with the committee is basically that, yes, they made Trump look bad, but no one has faced much accountability except for the people that stormed the Capitol who were lied to. And... If you don't get held accountable for your actions, you're probably going to do them again. And even Trump recently has called for getting rid of the current government to put him back into power. And of course he does this because no one ever held him accountable. And I think the hyper-focus on Trump may have diminished the ability or the potential for an actual reckoning within the GOP. I've talked about this at nauseum, so I'm not going to rant too much on this, but I think the GOP leaders, officials, and politicians that enabled Trump are a huge part of the problem. If Trump was the only guy saying the election was stolen, you may, you might have had 30, 40% of the base, maybe even less, still believing in the big lie. But the problem is when you had even Mitch McConnell failing to shake Biden's hand for weeks and all these other Republicans remaining silent, that 30 potential percent turned into something closer to 70% of the GOP not believing that the election was Biden's. And that's why, okay, focus the January 6th committee 
on Trump. Trump's the center of this. But if Trump is one guy screaming into the avoid, then it wouldn't have gone as far as the enablers. So the J6 uh, committee really did not put enough focus on Trump's enablers. There's a guy named Grant Tudor who works as a policy advocate for the Protect Democracy group, which is apparently nonpartisan. And he said in quotes here, if we imagine that preventing another assault on the democratic process is only about preventing the misconduct of a single person, we are probably not setting ourselves up for success. Going further, the report discusses how the dozens of state Republicans who signed on as fake electors were largely duped by Trump and his allies. And uh, I don't think some of these people were duped. I mean, Sean Hannity, for example, just testified under oath, I think two days ago, and said he never believed the election was stolen. Do you think Mitch McConnell believed the election was stolen? No, he was just waiting to see what could happen. And that's the fucking problem here. And yes, there were people that were duped. The ones who stormed the Capitol, I think, should be pardoned. Because a lot of these people were just duped by the media apparatus they were following for so long. And this report seems to downplay the enablers. Eisen, who's a co-author of a really interesting Brookings Institution report basically told an Atlantic article that I really like that the committee seemed to go out of its way to give the fake electors the benefit of the doubt. Also, there's a good article in The Atlantic by Ronald Brownstein, and at one point he talks with Bill Kristol, someone I'm a fan of, and basically he's a long-term neocon conservative strategist, and he turned staunch Trump critic. And Brownstein writes in an interview with Kristol, he says in quotes here, similarly, Crystal told me that although he believes the committee was mostly correct to focus its limited time and resources on Trump's role, the report doesn't quite convey how much the anti-democratic authoritarian sentiments have metastasized across the GOP. And I think it's an astute way to put it. Trump has become become toxic, right, because of his actions involving January 6th and his meeting with neo-Nazis and whatever else you want to say. But what about all the enablers like Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell or Jim Jordan or Ralph Northam who literally called for martial law? He couldn't spell it correctly, but he called for it. And these people are barely even mentioned in a lot of the criminal charges that the House committee calls for. And because we don't live in a dictatorship yet, these types of actions don't come from one person alone. They come from a group who is conspiring against democracy. And I just don't think the J6 committee did enough to push charges towards other people in it. And I just want to end this section with this quote from Ronald Brownstein's article. And he writes, Trump could not have mounted such a threat to American democracy alone. Thousands of far-right extremists responded to his call to assemble in D.C., 17 Republican state attorneys general signed on to a lawsuit to invalidate the election results in key states. 139 Republican House members and eight GOP senators voted to reject the outcome even after the riot on January 6th. Nearly three dozen congressional Republicans exchanged ideas with Meadows on how to overturn the results or extorted him to do so. Dozens of prominent Republicans across the key battleground states signed on to fake electors. Nearly 300 echoed Trump's lies about the 2020 election and were nominated in November of 2022. And I think that's the point of it. You don't get Trump continuously without people that agree with Trump and people that enable it. So let's move back from the enablers, and I guess we should stay on Donald Trump and just touch on his taxes. 
Now, I want to start by saying that I think it was a couple years ago now that the New York Times did release some information from Trump's taxes, right? And I don't think the taxes thing are as big as some people are making them out. Excuse me. um, That some people are making them out to be. Mainly because I think a lot of us already assumed what were in Trump's taxes, right? It's really not that surprising. And anyways, of course, the media has been speculating and... Now a group of tax experts have been studying the, what, six or seven years of taxes that have been unreleased for weeks. And the thing here is that the public still has not seen the actual documents, but the House has had access to them, and instead experts have been looking at them for the House. So I'll start by saying that we can only know what these people are telling us, so I'll try and take everything with a grain of salt. However, I think everything I've seen so far adds up to what we've already known about Trump. Getting into it, though, Politico notes here in quotes, though not well-known outside tax circles, the Joint Committee on Taxation is Congress's brain on tax issues, and the House Ways and Means Committee turned out to them for help deciphering Trump's exceedingly complicated filings. And look, look, before I continue, I'll just say exceedingly complicated sounds exactly like what we would expect. So basically, from what they've released and shared with the American public, I've tried to sift through all of the bullshit. And there are several red flags. Again, red flags that I think we could have predicted. The first is that Trump has not paid very much in taxes in a very long time. And he paid like nothing in 2020, because he's good at devaluing his assets. That goes into kind of the side effect of the first red flag, I guess you could call it is Basically, the big revelation is that Trump's businesses have lost a shit ton of money. The thing I will say is that Trump has pretty much told us this for a long time. Like, he's always just basically said he plays the system. So, not a big revelation to me. But a political article that I do like notes and quotes here, businesses are taxed on their profits. So, if they can show their earnings are being swamped by their expenses, they can erase their IRS bills. And that's apparently what Trump did. And it's pretty crazy, but in 2016, for example... When he paid just, (laughs) I love this number, $750 in income taxes, he reported $30 million in earnings, but also $60 million in losses. So, of course, he's losing twice as much as he's earning. Of course, yeah, you probably shouldn't be taxed on that. But I think the question is, were those losses legitimate? And I can't tell you for certain because we haven't got access to this and the IRS apparently never audited him. But I have my thoughts on it. I would say they're probably not legitimate. Another red flag Politico reports is that Trump mingled expenses. (laughs) This is a fun one. It writes here in quotes, There are multiple instances in which Trump may have improperly been deducting money spent on personal activities and hobbies such as business expenses. The JCT, which is that tax group I talked about, says it found many filings that are used to report streams of income where his earnings and expenses exactly matched. Or there were, or sorry, there was no reported income at all. And I guess that's always a sign of potential improper mingling of expenses. And I mean, this kind of seems to go hand in hand with some of the revelations we've seen from the Weiselberg charges with the Southern District of New York, right? And moving on, though, another red flag is that Trump gave a lot of loans to his kids. So, you know, Donald Trump Jr. a couple days ago is making fun of Zelensky calling him a welfare queen, but it looks like Trump was giving his kids a lot of loans. And 
Another article on this part writes, Trump reported receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest loans and payments on loans he gave to Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Eric Trump. And from my understanding, this kind of raises eyebrows because that could be a way to get around a gift tax. So instead of just giving them money, he's he's, he's doing interest payments on loans. Now, the most interesting part or thing in the reports from the JCT is that Trump claimed a foreign tax credit for paying $1.3 million to other governments. Now, I don't ever like to read that when this is a guy who had access to top, top secret information, had ability to, you know, send a nuke, for example. And, yeah, he claimed a foreign tax credit for paying other governments. And I guess this can be common, but again, like I've alluded to, the IRS never audited Trump, so it's unclear how he did this or why it happened. And after seeing these articles on the beginning of Trump's taxes, I think the remaining question to me is whether Trump is rich and just a fraud who's covering up his wealth, or if he's just not as wealthy as we think he is. Maybe both can be somewhat true. But I think once these taxes come out, it's going to hurt Trump. And the thing is, I couldn't really, I don't really care anymore if he wasn't running. But the thing is, he wants to run again. And I think we need to take the mask off. I think, I mean, I think the elephant in the room, too, is that Trump was not audited by the IRS when he was becoming president. And I think it's quite irritating that the IRS typically audits every new president but they just dropped the ball on doing so for Trump. Obama was audited. Biden was audited. I believe George W. was audited, just to give a few examples. And it's just odd to me that the guy who constantly lied, talked about using the system to his advantage, cheating the system, seemed to have shady companies, shell companies abroad. That guy was not audited. I can understand why some people think it was intentional and nefarious just because of the situation and Trump's misdirection of funds from the from the IRS and Trump's attacks on the IRS. I don't think Trump was nefariously getting the IRS not to audit him. I think it's more simple. And it's really just an appeal to Occam's razor. I think it's just Trump has a complex account system. He has numerous shell companies, numerous businesses, typically inflates or deflates his worth, depending on what is good for him. And I think the IRS is underfunded and lazy and pretty bad at its job. And it seems to me that the simple answer is the IRS did not have the means to audit Trump. So they didn't. And it's kind of a known fact at this point that the IRS usually picks on people they can audit, which is usually lower income people, people with less resources. They don't go for the guys who could afford a tax attorney. And even Obama or Biden were audited because they were mere millionaires guys like they were mere millionaires you know just so low income (laughs) and but I guess when you think about the difference between Trump and an Obama like it would probably be pretty easy to audit Obama well Trump you don't even know how much he's worth but I think the entire situation with Trump's taxes just shows the failures and inequities of our tax system in the U.S. because if you have money or lawyers or good accountants you can pretty much avoid the IRS But if you're low income or barely making enough to get by, for example, like not reporting your tips at a restaurant or the cash tips you get, they'll come after you. And so I don't really buy the nefarious stuff where, oh, like 
the Republicans helped Trump cover up his taxes. No, I think Trump, instead of being audited as the longest audit ever, was actually one of the first presidents to never get audited. So, I mean, anyways, we'll be done for today. A little bit longer episode, but Merry Christmas to all. Happy holidays. And uh, I'll be back next week with a good conversation with a friend of mine about what happens when the lights don't turn on. And that's kind of a metaphor for a lot of things. But anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, whatever else there is. I don't know anymore. Take care. I'll be back. Thank you.